This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 277 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. This is the last of our best in beer brewers perspectives. And joining me for this last Tuesday Brewers Perspectives episode is Randy Booth, head brewer for Twin Barns in, uh, is it Meredith, New Hampshire? Welcome to the podcast, Randy. Thank you so much for having me. On the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee up there uh, in New Hampshire. You know, I, uh, I used to mountain bike up there at, at uh, Highland Mountain. Great little mountain bike park in a kind of tilting area of, uh, of New Hampshire. It's been a whole bunch of years, more than a decade since I've been up there. But uh, cool area. Um, we're going to talk to Randy. You, I mean, you've got uh, some standout loggers that you've sent to us. And uh, your Belknap Pills rated a 99 in the magazine and uh, merited a spot as the our favorite German Pilsner of uh or german or german style pilsner of 2022 we're going to talk about lager brewing with randy before we do that step into the modern era of brewing AccuBrew presents a game-changing fermentation monitoring system giving brewers unprecedented real-time insight into yeast health and activity by simply mounting a sensor to a port brewers get real-time information through the AccuBrew app tracking sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity. And just one AccuBrew sensor protects every tank in the event of a glycol system failure. Get your hands on a tool that'll help you deliver your best brew every batch. AccuBrew has your back because it was designed for you, the brewer, by brewers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG, who invites you to get funky with Fermentus Soft Brew BR8, the first dry Britannomyces bruxellensis culture available to brewers. BR8 offers the distinctive flavor of Brett Brux combined with the shelf stability and consistency of dry yeast. BR8 delivers fruity notes early on, but with aging, the base starts to slap as BR8 brings the funk. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. So, Randy, let's talk about uh, Twin Barns and, and your personal arc through brewing. Walk me through that uh, that aha beer moment for you and then how that translated into deciding to pursue brewing beer uh, professionally and then how that professional arc has carried through for you. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, you said Winnipesaukee correctly. So that's how I knew you had some sort of relationship to New Hampshire because nobody ever says that correctly if uh, you've never <laughs> been here. So well done there. Um, my story, uh, stop me if you've heard it before, but I was a home brewer. Um, I was in college. Yeah, never, never heard that one before. I'm sure never you have heard that one before. Uh, so I was in college and, uh, you know, drinking, you know, the regular beer, the Budweiser's of the world. Never really enjoyed it. And I remember uh, drinking a long trail ale and uh, realizing that, wow, beer, beer can taste good. Beer can have flavor. Um, and that kind of sent me down that rabbit hole of um, uh, just trying different craft beer. Uh, long trail, Harpoon, Rogue, a lot of the ones that I started drinking in college. Um, but when I was in college, I was actually uh, getting a degree in journalism. So that was my focus at that time. Uh, so I actually uh, graduated college. You're you're a per, you're at, going after our pulling on our own heartstrings yep. here. Yep, and uh, yeah, it's uh, maybe it's a different story that you haven't heard on the podcast. But yeah, I went into the the newspaper world, 
And that was right around, I graduated in 09. So that was a bad time to graduate, um, looking for a job, especially in the, the newspaper field. Because it wasn't quite a time where you could get a digital job. You could um, work online or anything like that. You really still had to work at the physical newspaper or magazine if you were lucky enough. And those things were tailing off. So I uh, worked as a sports writer, sports editor, and I uh, actually worked as a sports editor kind of all over New Hampshire. Um, but I was an editor in Laconia, oddly enough, uh, right on Lake Win- Win- Winnipesaukee. And I remember at that point I started getting into homebrewing. And uh, as a sports editor, you, you're there till you put the paper to bed. Uh, you know, you're designing uh, the pages and you're getting coaches to call you. So I remember sitting at my desk waiting for you know, a Winnesquam field hockey coach to call in with a score. And while I was waiting, I would uh, read my homebrew book um, and whatever homebrewing things I could get my hands on. And I just knew at that point I was kind of uh, in on beer and out on newspapers as much as I still do love journalism. Um, So I kind of had a quarter life crisis at that point. Uh, I, a couple of years later, I sold all my stuff. Um, I had a friend and his uh, girlfriend who was actually moving to Colorado so she could get her master's. And, uh, they asked me, they said, Hey, you want to move to Colorado? And I was in a funk and I was like, sure, let's do it. So that's when I sold everything, um, moved across, uh, the country to Colorado to try to get into the beer industry. Cause in New Hampshire at that time, I want to say there was maybe 20, 25 breweries. Now we have more yeah. than a hundred. Um, so it wasn't as readily available as it is today to get into the industry. Um, so yeah, moved, moved to Colorado. Um, I remember emailing every brewery I could find in Colorado at that point. I was in the Fort Collins area cause uh, she was going to school in that, uh, at, uh, Colorado state. And, sure. so, and so we, right uh, here in our backyard right. in Fort Collins. That's right. Yeah. I drank uh, a lot of beers, uh, over at the uh, tap and handle and mayor and a lot of great spots in, in that area. But I knew I was going to be centered in Loveland. Um, but I, yeah, I emailed, I want to say 45 different breweries and there was one brewery that actually emailed me back and it was Wiley roots and Greeley. Um, and at that point I just basically said, Hey, I'm moving to Colorado. I want to get in the industry. And I remember, uh, Miranda Carbaugh, one of the owners, uh, emailing me back and she was like, essentially said, yeah, if you do show up in Colorado, sure, we'll give you an interview. I, I think it was a it was a pity party for the most part. And then all of a sudden, two months later, uh, I, sh- I kind of show up on an email and I say, hey, I'm here. And she's then I, I kind of called her bluff and uh, made her interview me. And uh, I went through the two hardest interviews of my life with Miranda. And uh, <laughs> I got like a 15 hour week taproom job, um, <clears throat> which is kind of crazy. But uh yeah, that's kind of where it all started. And uh, I told those guys I would do whatever they wanted me to do. So I started in the tap room. And then for very shortly after, I remember we uh, we lost our salesperson. So they said, hey, you want to try your hand at sales? They actually framed it as a competition. And I said, well, if it's competition, I'm in. And uh, they gave me all the crappy territories. I was, uh, you know, Kyle had, uh, Kyle Carbaugh, the owner brewer, had like Denver and uh, my good friend Skip, who's now at Weldworks, uh, he uh, he took like Fort Collins and every little town around it I got. And I was like, all right. So I just started selling beer. And uh, I think they appreciated that and was doing distribution. And I told them, you know, I have a social media journalism background, so I can do anything there for them. And I was, before I knew it, I was kind of doing whatever I could for those guys. Um, 
and I just started getting into uh, a small batch brewing at Wiley when a uh, brewery in New Hampshire, Hobbs Brewing Company. I kind of knew the owners there. They reached out. We actually had a collab planned at Wiley, and uh, I was I wasn't even at Wiley for a year when they came out. They were looking for a brewer, a new brewer, and they offered me the job. And yeah, I spent less than a year in Colorado, but that sent me to uh, back home to New Hampshire, where I was a head brewer <laughs> at Hobbs, and kind of the rest is history there. So. Sure, sure. So uh, Hobbs, you actually, uh, you know, won uh, what two JBF medals for in the farmhouse ale category? Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so uh, we won a bronze in seventeen and a silver in eighteen for classic saison. And uh, as a new brewer, you know, I started at Hobbs in two thousand sixteen. As a new brewer, I didn't know if I was making good beer. It's one of the hardest things. I'm sure, like you know, chefs battle this too, where you try something you make and you're like, oh, I think it's really good, but I, I see flaws or is it that good? And then everybody, everybody blows smoke up your butt. So, you know, you don't know if you can trust anybody's opinion on anything. Um, so once we won that medal, uh, it was kind of a moment where I realized we are making good beer. Um, it gave some validity. Then when we won the silver, it's like, okay, now we know we're consistent and that we can, can duplicate it. Um, and that was even a recipe, uh, funny enough, that was the first recipe I wrote at Hobbs, the first c- commercial recipe I ever wrote. And then this Belknap Pills, which we'll talk about later, was the first recipe I wrote at Twin Barnes. So I don't know if I store up energy and I spend it all on that first recipe, but uh, that's kind of what I did there with Saison. So. You peak early. Yeah, huh? yeah. And then, <laughs> then, then you keep trying to go after it as you keep brewing and brewing. So, uh, but that's, yeah, that's what we did at Hobbs. And uh, yeah, that really just uh solidified to me that we were on the right track and that you know the beer was solid and there's even tweaks between those two beers uh the the bronze and the silver winning beer but uh you know it it just put me in put put me in the right motion that you know we are making good beer and so then uh twin barns came along yeah so um you know i was at hobbs for about three years we actually did a lot of cool projects while i was um the head brewer there we were building a production facility and we actually built a brewery in Belize. Um, so if you uh, look up brewing in Belize, uh, this was the first brewery outside of Bellican, which has been there for a long, long time that opened up. So uh, I was down in Belize a few times to build that brewery. I wrote the first, somebody might want to argue with me, but I wrote the first IPA recipe in Belize, the country of Belize, which is kind of cool. Um, but it was at a time where a lot of other things were kind of going on, twin barns, uh, had just opened but needed a needed a brewer and uh, I actually went in there to help them transition um, because they had beer in the tanks but they had no way to get the beer out of the tanks and so they had to figure that all out so I actually went in there um, I've been on the board for the New Hampshire Brewers Association so I try to give back as much as I can to anybody that needs help and being only 35 minutes away I, I jumped at the opportunity just to help these guys and just being here I was like you know what I could I would like this setting. I would like a, a different challenge. I would like a, a a challenge that wasn't Hobbs was becoming a production brewery, which is obviously you know distribution and all that sort of thing. Where Twin Barns is built on bringing people to the brewery into the environment, and I kind of wanted that. I wanted to uh, instead of just brew anything I wanted, I want to brew uh, specific things and really try to nail them. And that's kind of where that German pills fit in. 
Well, I want to talk about that, Pills. Before we do that, balancing barley and hops is your expertise. Food-grade lubricants is theirs. When it comes to what you do, you're the expert. When it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. They'll work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your operation. To learn more, visit clarionlubricants.com slash food grade clarion lubricants the experts that experts trust so yeah randy uh, you know and i should say like belknap pills being this uh, german pilsner that we have uh, uh, you know included in our best 20 beers of 2022 wasn't the first lager that you sent to us the long ridge lager the year before also had a you know good mid 90s you know and very impressive lager score um you know and so clearly there's a pattern of successful lager brewing uh, but it also sounds to me like you are uh, a dogged researcher and uh, someone who dives down trying to to get the story and uh, oh I'm, I'm just dive, getting into the metaphor there pretty hard um don't want to bury the lead uh, you know, so there it is. So, uh, but but talk to me about your process when it comes to when it came to building a lager program and, and developing those first lager recipes. Well, first and foremost, uh, lager brewing at Twin Barns is difficult because it's not necessarily equipment or anything like that. But uh, we're so busy in the summer. You know, we're in a, a lake. We're a lake town. We're a, a tourist area. Where in the summer we flip tanks we're only brewing ales in the summer uh because all my loggers are going to spend at least six weeks in the tank and we just don't physically have the time or the capacity or the space to do that in the summer so my lager brewing um essentially kicks off with oktoberfest uh every fall and then i brew as many loggers as i can through the winter <laughs> and then yeah you know i gotta basically stop myself once uh once we creep up on memorial day because um you know once memorial day hits we just get wildly busy um so i only have a, a small window of time to brew these beers and that's uh, you know the lager issues usually roll into the perfect timing where the beer is uh still tasting great in the can and we can kind of send it out to you guys but yeah when it comes to uh brewing lager i i think um you simplicity is important uh you know like belknap pills has two malts and it's 98 percent environment pilsner um and two percent acidulated so it's it's built off of one, essentially one phenomenal malt. And even though, you know, we brew a kind of variety of Pilsners and whatnot, uh, you know, Weirman Pils, Weirman Pils isn't necessarily always our go-to base malt either. Um, you know, I've played around with some different malts to, to make other things work. Um, you know, for example, like Long Ridge is the floor malted uh, Bohemian Pilsner from Weirman. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about letting those uh, ingredients shine, getting great ingredients, um, and just kind of getting out of the way, uh, you know, when you, you say, uh, uh, yeah, I gotta, when you say make it work, that that's curious to me, you know, how do you define making it work? You know, especially when you're talking about malt in a lager and making some of these malt changes to achieve what you're looking for, as you start thinking about it, like where, how does that picture of what you want to achieve come into being? And then how do you, you know, then evaluate and measure your own kind of, you know, sensory or kind of technical performance of that against this idea that you have, you know, what is that, what's that process like? A lot of it is, uh, knowing your ingredient, at least to some extent, and then, uh, brewing it and just purely sensory after that, just understanding, okay, I know, you know, Pilsner malt is going to give me this honey like note. How much of that do I actually want in the final beer? Uh, to give you an example, we brew a, um, a Hellas 
and I used the, it was 100% four malted Bohemian Pilsner malt, and I love the beer, but at the end of the day, I was like, that's just too much of that malt. Um, so the next time I brew it, I'm going to cut back on that malt, probably blend it with more of the straight Pilsner malt. And just uh, basically when you, when you have uh, such limited ingredients, when you're not putting a bunch of stuff into your beer, you can really understand what each malt, each hop does for you. Uh, and that's one thing like Belknap Pills, it's, it's hopped with uh, Saz and Hallertown Middle Fruit. And the biggest thing over the life of that beer, you know, it's it's changed over the last couple of years that we've been making it, is getting that right combination of Saz and Hallertau. How to balance that and blend that. And it's not just 50-50 one and the other. It's about putting that, putting it in there and then going, okay, we need more Saz in this. We want a little bit more of that, uh, that bite to it. Um, or maybe there, you maybe less Hallertau, you know, you're trying to take a little bit of that, uh, earthy character out of it. So it's, it's when you when you're only working with four or five ingredients total in a beer, uh, I think you get a really good idea of, uh, what each brings to the table and then it's fine tuning it and balancing it. Every beer I, I brew, whether it's a lager or hazy IPA or whatever it might be, I I'm always looking for balance. I never want anything to kind of blow out anything else. And so to get that in something like Belknap Pills, you know, the, the, the Saz and Hallertau, um, they're prominent. Like they're prominent in the end of that boil to give you that flavor, that aroma, um, to give you everything you want out of a German Pills. Uh, but you still need to be able to see the, the forest behind the trees and see that malt and see how that malt uh, holds up to that, to that hopping on that beer. Sure, sure. Now, of course, on top of all of that, you've got seasonal changes to these ingredients. And if you're only brewing in the winter season every year, it's, you know, it's uh, harder and harder, you know, versus some brewers, uh, you know, who can phase things in and gently move over season to season. Um, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, between hop, uh, hop uh, harvest years, between, uh, you know, your the malt that you brought in, you know, there are some that can blend through those things and make these transition subtle you obviously don't have that kind of piece to it uh, we can talk about that down the road but i still want to you know kind of touch on this this malt piece when you think about it from a, a sensory perspective how would you how do you define that uh Weyermann pills versus like the uh you know the four malted czech bohemian pilsner it's funny uh as as ger- journalism in our background and both of us uh i can't always put words to some of the stuff i taste or i smell there's a uh, you know, when that Vireman Pilsner, it's... Uh, Randy, you're a word guy. I know, I, but... I'm gonna, I, I need this from you. Come I, on. I always tell people, <laughs> I'm a word guy on paper. I'm not a word guy uh, verbally uh, over the microphone. Um, but the Vireman Pils, you know, I get that honey honey character from it. And I don't always want that in whatever I might be brewing. And that Bohemian Pilsner, and this is a terrible word, but it has this rustic character maybe a more of an earthy crackery character to it that I really love. And it, and it's a hundred percent what we put in our Czech Pilsner. Um, but it's not where I want to go with our German Pilsner with the Belknap Pils. And then, like I said, with our Hellas, that, um, is a, a release every, every once in a while it's, it was a hundred percent. And now it's going to be going down next time we ever, we ever brew it. It's going to cut a little bit because while that character is great, I don't necessarily want it a hundred percent of a, uh, Munich Hellas. So, uh, sure, but, sure. but a lot of it is just relying on those maltsters, you know, Vireman being one of the best, you, you got to rely on those maltsters to th- their job is to make great, 
great uh, malted barley. And so we, we trust them to do it. And if I order their, their malt in, uh, you know, July, or if I order it in February and, you know, I know it's going to be solid. And I think that's, that's why, you know, you gotta, you gotta order good ingredients. You gotta trust your ingredients. And uh, a lot of people, you know, not really loggers, but I know there's brewers that say, okay, let's just get the cheapest two row for a beer. But at the end of the day, if your, if your beer is balanced, you're going to, you're going to taste it one way or the other. So I always, uh, I always kind of put as much premium as I can on every ingredient from the malt to the hops, to the yeast. We're talking about, you know, fine tuning and the difference between good and great, you know, ingredients absolutely play a part in that. Um, But technical process and being able to get the most out of those ingredients is also, and there are plenty of brewers that make good but not great beers using those same ingredients. And so figuring out what those small things are that help elevate that, um, you know, that's what I want to keep diving into. Talk to me about, uh, you know, kind of uh, mash strategy here. Uh, tell me what kind of brew house are you brewing on and, you know, what then, uh, you know, in terms of step mashing, decoction, et cetera, do you employ to, to try to uh, get, you know, move this malt character in the direction that you want it to go in? So our brewery was not built for lager brewing. Um, <laughs> not, sure. not, not ideal, but, you know, that wasn't uh, – that wasn't necessarily the vision when Twin Barns opened. Um, so we're, we're a single infusion. Um, that's one thing I've done over the years is um, I do try to dry out these beers. I love dry beers. Um, I want them as dry as I can get them. We actually, this one uh, clocked in about uh, 147 degrees on that on that mash temp. Um, so we're going dry, dry, dry. You know, we can't, yeah. we can't step mash. We can't decoct. We can't do anything. So even, even more of a reason to buy the best uh, ingredients you can and, and trust your ingredients. But that's, uh, that's essentially what we're doing. We're, we're single infusion. We're, we're getting as dry as possible. Uh, you know, we're not trying to over, um, over uh, mix a mash or anything like that. We're pretty gentle with it. We give it a nice long Vorloft, get that as clear as possible. And then we, we send it to the kettle. So we're not doing anything crazy. We're just we're just we're just confident in our process and our ingredients, and I think that's one of the biggest things when it comes to uh, lager brewing, especially when you might not have all the bells and whistles. Are there any kind of technical pieces on there, whether it's you know you know trying to control hot side aeration, you know, or low oxygen type of thing? I mean, are there other pieces to that that, uh, or some of the fine things that you pay attention to on that mash side you know obviously a nice long and gentle you know vorloff is is something there and a a gentle mix but uh you know are are there some key points there that you find help make a difference in the the overall quality for that one obviously hitting your temper uh your temp is super important um you know we are adding some uh calcium calcium sulfate to the mash um once again, to kind of uh, lean on that that dryness side and and focus on uh, getting that as as crisp as possible. Um, a, a lot of it's just kind of taking our time and doing it right and and, yeah. and, and not rushing the Vorloff. Um, you know, I know some people will Vorloff for five five minutes and then and they send it. You know, this beer we we Vorloff for at least thirty minutes, probably thirty five, depending on the beer. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're just, we're just being gentle and being kind. We're trying to take care of the beer sure. so the beer take, takes care of us in the end, especially early on. Yeah. Yeah. Water's also obviously going to be a big component of this. Uh, you know, how, 
Yeah, and you just mentioned some water treatment there. Yeah. Um, you know, is there any, any other uh, you know ways that you adjust this? Are you guys using you know is it reservoir water? Is it well water? You know, what do you you know? How do yeah, you... we we have a we have beautiful water. Uh, you know, there's a beautiful aquifer in the area, um, so we have some of the best water that you could possibly brew with. Very soft, um, so I don't do a lot when it comes to lagers. Every, cool. every beer, every beer gets adjusted somehow or, or another. Uh, but I've just found with a lot of these lagers, um, I just need to hit it with a little bit of calcium sulfate. Um, and, uh, depending on what I'm going for, um, uh, but I'm going to hit it with a little calcium sulfate, uh, just to, just to enhance it a little bit. Uh, but we, yeah, we have really nice clean water, um, even at Hobbs, which is only 45 minutes or 35 minutes away. Uh, water was, uh, very lucky to brew that water. Honestly, if, I moved to Manchester, New Hampshire, started brewing in Manchester. It would be a whole nother world because just changing that water, not having that same water source would be uh, uh, kind of crazy. It, it, would be, it would be difficult. It would be a learning curve to start off. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, we're lucky. Or, or require some investments and additional equipment in order to, you know. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so just having such a great uh, blank canvas to start with, uh, I think helps us uh, for, for sure. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk, uh, you know, again about that, or, or get into this hot side boil, and then we and start talking about hops. Um, you know, and you mentioned getting the blend right. I imagine some of that's also an issue of getting the timing right through that process. Talk to me about, you know, number number one, what your bitterness goal is, and how you then shape the character, you know, of that hop flavor on, on through that hot side addition. Yeah, so we have a, a pretty vigorous boil. Uh, so that's one thing too. Uh, we, we only boil for 60 minutes. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people with pills malt are going to go to 90 minutes. I've honestly never seen a need to do it. Um, I've, I've, I've certainly played around with it. But in uh, our setting now, I stick to I stick to 60 minutes. And no DMS issues from from that? Nothing that I've, cool. I've been able to taste through sensory or anything like that. Um, you know, I, maybe I'm just lucky. Um but uh, so we go 60 minutes there, real vigorous boil. Um, we start with some Magnum uh, just to get a nice layer of bitterness, uh, clean bitterness in that beer. And I'm not doing that with every lager. Um, that's one thing I've, I've started to play around with more is using low alpha hops early in the boil. Um, but right now that Magnum, that super clean Magnum is works for this beer, obviously. So I don't think I'm going to be changing that. Um, and then, yeah, uh, this is one of the few beers uh that we're adding a good uh, chunk of hops middle of the boil. So 30 minutes we add size and Hallertau, um, and then right toward the end we're adding size and Hallertau. Uh, with such a vigorous boil, we do have issues with um, uh, potential boil overs and that sort of thing. So the more uh, I throw in the middle of that that uh, that mat, uh, boil time, the more likely I might potentially have issues. Um, but that is one that I, I make sure we get a good 30 minute addition. Um, and then, uh, the, the blend at the end, the blend at basically flame out whirlpool. Um, that's uh, it's a little bit more size than Hallertau and it's, uh, not quite a pound per barrel in that whirlpool, but it's, it's fairly close. Um, and then for hops like that, I think it, uh, you're really extracting, um, some really beautiful flavor. I think you're getting a really nice bitterness to that beer, um, but it's it's just a, a solid pilsner. It makes you want to drink it, <laughs> a few of them, uh, and it, it makes you want to come back for more, and it keeps it crisp, which I think we all want in our lagers and our pilsners. Um, 
but but yeah that was a big thing early on is i think i had more of an even blend in that beer and I, I think i had less hops um toward the flame out and now it's just uh you know i, I sat with friends other brewers um, you know, and that's the biggest thing learning in this industry, by the way, is having people you can trust that you can bounce beers off of, bounce ideas off of. But I remember talking to a buddy of mine and we both kind of agreed, yeah, let's, let's hit this with more hops at the end and see what happens. And, uh, it, it turned out that it just made it shine that much brighter. Um, once again, simple ingredients, timed right, get the right blend and I'm happy with it. So this 30 minute edition you know, it doesn't sound like that was something you were doing, you know, when you started, what have you found that that in particular, like, is there some, like, obviously we're talking about like very, very small impressions here and very, very slight shifts. Um, but you've also at the same time changed the blend of those two hop varieties. Um, how did you control for the variables as you made these changes? Again, knowing that you're only brewing this a couple of times each year and making these new ch- you know changes each season um, as you kick back into lager brewing, uh, you know, like, you know how how are you measuring some of those changes? Uh, then again, evaluating them and what could you say that some of those small things are doing to the beer itself? Well, I will say it's it's difficult because uh, you know when you only brew, I only brew Belknap, you know, a couple times a year, hopefully. Right. Um, and I, you got to take good notes. I, I've been trying to get really good at taking notes on all these beers, especially you know when they go on tap. Um, you know, really making note of the impression I'm getting, and then when I'm on those last couple kegs, I you know I want to taste that as well to make sure to see how it's aged and um, see how it's it, it might have changed over time. Um, but a lot of it's centric and just in trusting your gut um, and knowing that when you brew and make these changes, you're like, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying the best ingredients. I'm, you know, I'm trying to source the best size and the best Hallertau. And uh, like, I, this is, you know, you can't take a lot back in brewing. You know, you brew the beer, you give it your best shot, you lean on your experience, you lean on the ingredients and you hope you make a great product. And, uh, you at the end of the day or, you know, end of the batch life, when you're drinking that beer off tap, you say, OK, I, I get this. I get this note, but I want to change. I need to change it a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit too much of X and too little of Y. Um, so, you know, at our scale, because we're only brewing about a thousand barrels a year at this point. So we're not this brewery that's turning, sure. turning, turning tanks every single day. Um, you know, we're super. And I would say 80 percent of that's between Memorial Day and Columbus Day. So it's, uh, we kind of go crazy for six months and then slow right down. Um, but for that beer specifically, um, I think just those hops being in that boil for 30 minutes, those oils, you're getting different oils, uh, kind of coming through those hops. You're, you're getting different experiences when it comes to, um, the earthiness and the spiciness, uh, and the floral character from those hops specifically. So that was something that I think you can taste in the final product and, and, for me, yeah, I can only really so it's do one it pound, side by side. Yeah. So one pound per one pound per barrel total for the hot side on on those is close how does total that, total for close. yeah for a ten yeah. barrel batch. How does that split then between that thirty minute edition and the the whirlpool edition? It's only uh, it's only a couple pounds, two pounds uh, total at thirty, and then we've got about uh, seven ish pounds in that whirlpool. So and it's a little bit more size than Hallertau. 
Um, I should have looked up my original recipe to see how it compared to the, to the latest recipe. But I do remember that that being a change was trying to get a little bit, um, just changing that character a little bit. And I mean, I love Saz. I know it's not traditional in a uh, German Pilsner. You know, it's an ex- it's the exclusive hop in our um, Czech Pilsner, the Long Ridge. But it just, it gives you that character you want. Um, and I think you want that noble spice character in a beer like this. And that's why it kind of edged, edged out a uh, Hallertau in this. And I use a lot of Hallertau for other things. Um, you know, each has their own place in, in different beers. Um, but it, uh, I just, finding that balance was key over the last three years. Even though I haven't, I can't brew it consistently for three years, I kind of have to rely on my notes and my gut and the sensory and say, okay, <laughs> you know, where do we go with this beer? How do we, how do we fine tune in? There's not a lot of fine, t- you know, with a lager, like I said, there's not a lot of, to fine tune, you know, it's, it really comes down to your process and your ingredients. And then after that, you know, where are you putting hops? What time for how long are you knocking out fast enough? Are you uh, obviously fermenting at the right temperature? So uh, there's, there's, there's work to be done on a, on that fine tune scale for sure. Talk to me about this Whirlpool edition and, you know, in terms of timing, temperature, you know, the kind of, you know, how long you let it stand and whatnot. You know, I'm curious just how much contact at what kind of temperature it's taking here at the end uh, so that you're not getting something that's overly fragrant or overly aromatic either. Sure. Uh, So we kill the heat and we essentially, uh, we start Whirlpooling. We'll Whirlpool those hops for about 25 minutes and we let it rest for about 10 uh, so we don't cool it down at all. I've actually, that's something I'm going to play with in the future when it comes to lagers. I do that with all our New England style IPAs. I do think that's a uh, a great thing for those beers. And I think it was actually one of your podcasts. Somebody was talking about cooling the Whirlpool, I believe, for lagers. I think specifically Italian pills. So I think I'm going to try that. Um, but for this one, it's pretty simple. Um, we're just adding it, spinning it for about 25, letting it rest for about 10 you know, every system's different. Uh, it's kind of funny thinking back when I left Hobbs and came to Twin Barns, how, you know, I had a certain way I did everything at Hobbs. Then I come to Twin Barns and everything that I did is now backwards. And now I can't even remember what I did at Hobbs. So three, <laughs> three years later. So um, it seems uh, pretty standard to me. But yeah, and then we're just wrestling, wrestling for 10. And then we're, then we're getting it in that tank as fast as possible and as cold as possible, which it's great that we brew lagers in the winter. Um, but, uh, Oktoberfest specifically, it's sometimes tough to get it, uh, cold enough, fast enough. So, so you move it fast rather than a gentle transfer at that point, And you're just trying to, yeah, get it in there cold. Yeah. Let's get it in there cold. Um, for that beer specifically, we're, you know, we're knocking out about 50 degrees and we fermented about 52 degrees. Um, and that, like I said, that is the nice thing about winters here in New Hampshire. Uh, I typically don't have a problem with that. I can go nice and fast. Uh, the Oktoberfest test my, test my ability for sure. Um, and then we're just giving it a bunch of oxygen. All, all the loggers are going to get all the it. Florida brewers are like, yeah, we can't. <laughs> I know. Right. And, he, and we, <laughs> we can't we, chill down that fast. And we have a two phase, um, heat exchange as well. So we're, we're pumping cold water. We're pumping yeah. glycol. We're doing everything we can to, to get these chilled, but um, but yeah, the other thing is we just, we give it a ton of oxygen too. Um, I probably over oxygenate if anybody, uh, were to, com- if we were to compare notes with the average brewer, they'd probably say over oxygenate, but I've got a pretty good system. It works out pretty well and I get the results I want. So if I'm using a little bit more oxygen at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm fine doing that. But I find, uh, those beers, uh, like having that much O2. 
Sure, sure. So talk to me about fermentation. Um, I, I'm going to assume you're using cylindroconical tanks since this is not a, a brewery that was built for uh, for that. Is there, uh, you know, in terms of, of geometry, what do those look like? And, you know, what, what then, you know, how do you then coax great re, uh, results out of the lager yeast that you're fermenting with? Yeah, we don't have any uh, lagering tanks, unfortunately. Nothing, nothing fancy like that as much as i wish we had room for it we certainly do not um but yeah we're uh, so like i said we're fermenting. it's the beautiful thing about having these conversations with brewers about these phenomenal lagers are now making in, in america is that you know there's a lot of ways to get to the same result and uh you know and i think that's one overarching narrative that we've been able to to come across here that uh um it's not just what you have it's it's how you use it Oh, for sure. I mean, I've had incredible loggers that had loggering tanks. I had incredible loggers that didn't. I've had incredible ones that step mash, that don't step mash, that decoct and don't decoct. So, uh, yeah, there's more than one way to skin the cat when it comes to beer. And that's I think that's one of the great ways, great things about beer and, and lager brewing, too. Um, but, yeah, so we don't have anything too crazy or too fancy. Um, like I said, we're knocking out 50. We're fermenting at 52. And, uh, you know, it, it, it takes its... Um, appropriate amount of time to ferment out you know it takes a, a handful of days and then you know we give it a, a appropriate uh diacetyl rest just to be safe i usually uh i'll let the jackets go up about 10 degrees if they ever get there but i just kind of turn the jackets on off toward the end of uh, fermentation and then i think one of the things uh that i do that not everyone does is i do a, a slow crash on the on that tank so i'll take it from you know whatever it, if it's a say it's at 55 we'll go down two degrees every single day until we hit uh, 32 and then it lives in the tank for at that point at least another three four five weeks so every every from brew day to package day is at least six weeks and then it's cold obviously for the majority of that uh, but that's you know that's one thing i've learned with lager brewing is you can taste that beer every day or every week and there's there is a corner that these beers turn um the brewers that brew uh um, you know, loggers at ale temperatures and say they get the same product. I don't, I don't know. I know it's possible. I know it's, I know it's possible. I just haven't had a lot of great examples of that. So I do believe in, uh, you know, fermenting cold, uh, getting the beer cold slowly, you don't want to shock the yeast and then, uh, just letting it sit cold. And yeah, it might be week five and you taste it and you're like, yep, it's still rough around the edges. And all of a sudden it's Monday morning, you come in and you're like, yeah, this is this is where it wants to be and where it needs to be. Um, and then at that point for us, we move it to our bright tank. We have one bright tank. We have six remainders and one bright tank. And so that bright tank is very active in the summertime. Probably the hardest work in the brewery. Uh, we get that carved up and we get it packaged. Um, we do a little bit of uh, uh, spooning uh, here, but it's 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 honestly a part of my um, resume that I haven't perfected or mastered yet. I keep working on it, but I haven't. I'm still I'm still trying to figure that process out where I'm comfortable doing it every single time and get really really good results every single time. So, uh, well, it, it, I what have, does that mean? Uh, you know, what what are some of the challenges that you face while uh, spending? A lot of the challenges is just knowing when to to cap your tank and get that valve on there, and then going from there, treating it and making sure that you you know your your pressure is appropriate. And then getting that uh, that beer to your bright or packaged um, without too much breakout or anything like that. Um, we do a really good job um, with dissolved oxygen. Uh, it's one of those things where 
small brewery once again we don't have a do meter but we've had do meters in the building testing a lot of our a lot of our beers so we do a lot of work to keep oxygen out and i think that's another one thing we might do too much of that maybe but at the end of the day uh you know we have really good canned beers that are five six months old uh, because I think we we take that extra effort to make sure we eliminate oxygen from the process. Um, but yeah, spooning is uh, is something where I feel like I, I do it well one day, and then the next time I'm like, oh, screwed that up, that one up. Um, but uh, and, and I only get so many shots because uh, you know brewing lagers in the winter, I only brew maybe five or six in the winter. So those are my shots. And if I if you miss that window, if uh, you know you're sick to work one day, can't make it in, can't throw that valve on, or say that lager wanted it on a Sunday and can't make it in on sunday then you know you you, you kind of uh you missed your window and that's that yep so yeah. it's one of those yeah. things where you know it, it's it's a blind spot in my game that i i want to keep working on and i think i i do think that matters in some of these beers for sure when you can get some of that carbonation like that and you don't have to top it off as much um but once again if uh i think at the end of the day if if you go through the right process to keep the oxygen out and treat those beers well, you can carb it up and still get a nice mouthfeel and still get a really nice beer. You know, if you are in a batch that where it has worked out for you versus a batch where you missed that window, um, you know, how do you, would you describe the beers differently or, you know, is it noticeable in a sensory perspective? Now, of course, you're never really tasting them side by side because there's, there are different ages on each, you know, if you were to even try to do something like that. But, uh, you know, in terms of plumbing into, you know, your memory there, um, any differences that you might define that way for yourself that uh, would drive you to want to be better at uh, spending? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure other brewers are like this where I will taste something and I, I see it. I need to do a thing a certain way to make to achieve it. And then somebody else sits standing right next to me is like, why are you losing your mind about that? Like, I can't I can't taste it. I can't I can't understand. And you kind of do have to think of it from that perspective, from like the consumer perspective that they might not notice, you know, one batch of pills that's spooned and the, the next one isn't. Um but man, those they do they do make great beers when you do it right. Um, you know, it's a mouthfeel thing. It's a the 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 tightness of those bubbles um, or the the head and that sort of thing. So I think it adds up. But it's one of those things you don't miss it until you have it. You know, you don't you don't you don't realize you need it until it's it's not there. And you're like, oh, this this really is the uh, thing that might separate beers. And I think great lagers, you know when we're talking about beers with four or five ingredients, when you can top it off with something as subtle as that, you know, you can be, that can make the difference, you know, say in a, uh, an issue of your magazine, it could be a 89 or it could be a 99 if you nail that portion of it. So, uh, yeah, it's something, uh, we're working on it. It's, it's, uh, we'll get there. Sure. Sure. Um, you never mentioned what yeast you ferment with. Uh, so I'm using uh, the Omega German one lager strain now. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's super versatile. It's clean. It doesn't throw out a ton of sulfur. I don't like a ton of sulfur in my lagers, but uh, I love working with Omega. They've they've everything I've asked from them. They've been phenomenal. So their lager strain is great. And it's like I said, it's versatile. So we use that as much as we can. We've used it in our check pills. We've used it in our Dunkel. We use it in our uh, Oktoberfest. Uh, it's just a it's just a great strain that can kind of do everything. 
Sure, sure. Um, let's maybe let's uh, you know talk about your, uh, your the the points of difference for your check style pell lager. Um, obviously, malt is a big piece there. Uh, you know, what are what are some of the other elements? And and I guess I should couch this in saying, it's always interesting for us to see how brewers define these beers. More often than not, we'll find brewers call something their Czech style lager because it's brewed with Czech ingredients. Not that it necessarily reflects or tastes like an actual Czech style pale mm. lager, um, you know. And the same kind of thing with German, which is just gen- generally means, in this kind of shorthand, just sharper bitterness. Mm. Um, you know, how do you then think about you know making using these, you know, kind of schools of lager brewing, and making something you know, like compelling in each of those, um, that are different from each other. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, uh, especially brewing Pilsner and when you're brewing a Czech versus a German. One of the toughest things is just education for your staff, for your bartenders. You know, it's to explain the subtle differences between a Czech style Pilsner and a German Pilsner. I think you get a lot of glazed over looks potentially from your staff. Um, so you got to kind of hit some key points so they can understand it and then they can sell it to the customer. Um, it, maybe it's a selfish thing. Maybe we shouldn't have a Czech pills on at the same time we have a German pills on, but there are, uh, it's kind of what I want to do. It's what I want to drink. Um, and then we, but we do have, we do have people for whatever reason, even though both beers are, are quite hoppy and there's similar beers. We have people that, you know, go, go crazy for the long ridge. And then we have other people that go crazy for this bell nap. Um, but yeah, the, the Czech style is a lot like this. But stripped down even more. It's 100% floor malted Bohemian Pilsner malt, and then it's 100% size. And it's going off memory here, but I want to say there's even more size um, total total hopping uh, in that beer versus this beer. So obviously this one is a size in Hallertau, where that one's just size, but it's even more size. Where that's prominent, where you're really tasting that 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 beautiful size uh, Czech size character, um, and then you've got that malt. Like I said rustic i don't know why that's it's a word that always sticks in my mind about that malt get that rustic character of that beer and uh i'm happy because we just packaged it last week so we've got we've got that fresh here for the next uh for nice, the next nice. little bit um but it's just i use the word too toothy a lot to describe it because it just has it's i wouldn't call it grainy or husky but it just has this you know there's like this mid-tone to it like you know punchy mids that uh um, you know, where some of the, the German Pilsner just kind of, you know, doesn't, doesn't hold up, you know, quite as much in those midtones yeah. to use an audio analogy around that, you yeah. know, there's just that, yeah. Or that into that like midtone into the, the, the upper base, uh, register there, you know, there's just something that seems full, more full about the, uh, you know, that Bohemian floor malt. Yeah. It's like I said, I wish I was a better verbal wordsmith here. Um, but I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, I, I love the mall. It's a beautiful mall. Um, it just it has its time and place, just like anything else. And once you understand these ingredients, once you brew with them and really understand them well, I think that's the difference between making good beer and great beer is because you can then dissect it and start playing around with those number, those percentages, and and understanding what you're doing with with these things. Like I said, Fireman Pilsner is a beautiful, beautiful mall. Sometimes I don't want that much honey character. Um, we do a corn lager. So we have uh, New Hampshire Bike Week. Um, it is one of the biggest bike rallies in America. It's right down the road. It's actually the 100th year of it coming up next year. Um, but we do a corn lager for it. 
And that's actually a beer brewed with entirely New England grown malt. So while Vireman Pills would be beautiful in that beer, I don't want as much honey character in that. I want more corn coming out. So we actually use um, a really nice uh, Pills malt from Maine Malt House uh, in that beer. And But it's, it's, it's not as, let's say, rustic as uh, Bohemian Pilsner. Uh, but it has a really nice um, lighter honey note than the than the pills. Um, really clean, you know, slightly kind of crackery, but a, a really great malt, and it fits that beer perfectly. Um, every every malt has a time and a place. Just just a matter of getting comfortable with them and just figuring out where you want to go in the at the end result. How does uh, something like Maine, you know, uh, Pilsner malt from a craft maltster? Um, work in a technical way compared to you know some of the continental malts that you're also brewing lager with it certainly it's uh it so we brew that corn lager once a year um for bike week so i don't handle it as much i handle i, I do handle in some other beers um but sometimes you just got to go in anticipating you know your numbers to be a little different your your efficiency to be a little different you know, it's, it's always nice to have an extra bag or two on hand just to, to understand, um, you know, what you're working with. Um, and sometimes, you know, consistency isn't necessarily, um, you know, they're not 100% consistent, these craft maltsters. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because um, we're going to, I think as a brewer, you're going to get damn close to what you're going to try to do. And if it's off a little bit, at the end of the day, you're still going to get fantastic malt and you're still going to get a great character from that malt. Um, so it might be off a little bit, but you're, you're still achieving, I think at the end of the day, uh, your flavors and you know, your efficiency might be off a couple points, but there's some workarounds on that. Um, so technically it's, I don't, with the really good craft maltsters, like main mall house is a great example. You're not, you're not missing anything. You might lose a couple of efficiency points, but you're getting uh, a really great local craft malt that, um, that you can also tell a story with. Which is, I think, you know, beer is about, I always say beer isn't about beer, beer is about people. And so when you can tell the story about local malt and local hops and that sort of thing, it's just, it's just another way to, to, to get your beer in front of people and have them enjoy it. Back to your journalism roots. You're telling yeah. the story, aren't That's you? Right. <laughs> Are there any other loggers that, you know, that you've been uh, playing with and developing over the years? You mentioned Oktoberfest. Are there, are there any others uh, that find their way into your brew schedule in that wintertime off-season uh, <laughs> window for, for brewing lager? Yeah, so we actually do a, uh, a dunkle, which is – it kind of has a cult following. I was actually doing a beer fest in Vermont. And I had a, so, you know, Vermont's our neighbor, but like obviously crossing state lines is difficult beer wise, but we had a little fest that we were able to do. I had somebody come up to me in Vermont asking about this beer and we're not anywhere close. And it's, it's a beer that we maybe do literally do 30 cases of, uh, out of a 10 barrel batch once a year. I had people ask when Dunkel's going to come out, you know, it's a little 4.2% Dunkel, um, really just full of flavor, delicious beer. So it has a cult following, uh, side note on that beer real quick. Uh, this summer, like I said, we brew a ton of beer. I wanted to experiment with that beer. I can't brew Dunkel in the summer because obviously it's going to be in a tank six weeks, seven weeks. Can't do that. So uh, I took that same exact recipe and I actually swapped the yeast for uh, an ale yeast. And we called it Dunk Ale. Uh, rim shot. Um, but uh, I wanted to see, you know, if you take that those same ingredients and you swap the yeast... 
you know, what kind of, what, what would you get out of it? And uh, it's so weird, you know, Dunkel is a cult favorite and we don't sell a lot of dark beer here, oddly enough, but uh, we put the Dunk Ale on and we told everybody it's an Ale East and they, they, they drank it up and they loved it. They loved the little 4.2% light dark beer. Um, I coined it an American Dark Mild because I, that was the best thing, <laughs> best way I could describe it. So uh, maybe that might be the next trend in one of your magazines is the American Dark Mild. Uh, American Dark American Mild. Dark Mild. Um, huh. But uh, yeah, it's got a little cult following the Dunkel and now the Dunk Ale, which I think will come back as a different beer next year. Um, so that's that's when we always do um, Long Ridge is back or Czech Pills. Uh, and then uh, we're new one this year. We're going to be brewing a, an Italian Pilsner. So that's a, a style that's kind of intrigued me for years now. And I do, I think I, like I said, I think it was one, one year podcast where they started talking about a couple different techniques when it comes to hopping those beers that I think I'm going to give it a go. Um, and then that kind of leads us right to the beginning of summer. Uh, oh, actually Vienna lager. We do a Vienna lager as well. Um, and that one's uh, uh, quite rustic as well. Another like 4.3%. It's just little dry Vienna lager. That's uh, also popular. Uh, but yeah, that leads us to summertime where we then brew, We'll brew 20 barrels of our open road, our corn lager, and then that sets us up for about a month uh, of summer and bike week. And then we're then we're in the IPA and light beer territory time. for about four or five okay. months. So <laughs> cool. Well, you know, any you know final takeaways on uh, you know stuff that you think makes a difference in these beers? Um, you know, and any of those uh, the small things maybe that we haven't talked about where you're like, you know. This, I think, is probably a difference maker. The biggest thing is ingredients. Treating, treating those ingredients right, and then with lagers, it comes down to time. I don't think there's, me personally as a brewer, I don't think there's any way to take any shortcuts with these beers. Like I said before, I've had beers that, I've had lagers that were uh, you know, fermented and packaged in 10 days, and people say, oh, yeah, you can't taste the difference. I think if you're if you're doing things the traditional way, you're using traditional ingredients. Uh, I think it you need time. Time is such an important ingredient when it comes to lager brewing. And like I said, if you taste a beer on week five and it's not ready, and six it's not ready, and seven it's not ready, then it's not ready, and you just keep it in the tank. And that's that's where we benefit. Is you know in the winter I can I can leave them in the tank for an extra week or two if I if I if I want to. Uh, but time, quality ingredients, and um, you know, take a couple chances here and there. Like I think the the next uh, evolution for us is really nailing down where we're getting our saws from, where we're getting our Hallertal from. Um, so we know what hops we like and where we like them, but who do we acquire them from? Who can uh, get us really, really good lots of those hops so we can really fine tune these beers. And I think once again, that's something that can make a beer from really good to great. Um, and this is just a little fine tuning time and fine tuning. Keep putting the work in. That's a great place to bring this to a close. AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. Fermentus Soft Brew BR8 is the first dry Brett Brooks culture available to brewers. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. As we enter this holiday season, don't forget that subscriptions to Craft Beer and Brewing are a great gift for those fellow brewers in your life, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, give a gift 
to somebody who matters to you and help us make a difference at the same exact time. Randy, if people want to learn more about Twin Barns, the beers you make, or, or even come visit you, where do they find you all? Yeah, so online, you know, you can visit us, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all those good things. We actually have multiple accounts now because we just opened uh, a tap room, a new tap room up in uh, North Woodstock, New Hampshire, um, which doesn't sound impressive if you're in California or Colorado or anything, but we actually just passed a law in New Hampshire last year to allow for satellite tap rooms. And we were the first brewery in the state to uh, get lucky enough to take advantage of it. So uh, we opened that on Columbus Day. Um, so we've got a tap room up there, which is right near Ski Mountain. So our winters are gonna get busier. I'm hoping that doesn't uh, take my lager brewing away from me. Um, so you can come visit us in North Woodstock or you can come to the original Twin Barns and we're at uh, 194 Daniel Webster Highway in Meredith, New Hampshire, right on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee. Randy, thanks for uh, joining me for the podcast. Thanks for sharing some of your thoughts on lager brewing. Thanks for making some uh, really compelling lagers that are standing out amongst a crowded field of great lagers with our blind review panel. And uh, yeah, thanks for talking to me. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.